You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to week seven of Heaven and Hell and Everything in Between. Has this not been a fun journey? It's been good. Okay, just as a uh, reminder before we dive into tonight's talk, um, a reminder that next week we are doing uh, the panel discussion, and this is all your extra questions. And oh, we've been getting a few questions and some really good ones, but especially even after tonight, um, if you have some questions about the topic tonight, send them my way. If you don't get them answered by Marty, send them to me and I'll just ask Marty afterwards. So all good, right? So, but uh, yeah, we'll be finishing off the class next week with our panel discussion where you can ask all your remaining questions. And uh, then after that, we'll take a couple of few weeks off for Easter and then we'll just start up again. We'll have a new class lined up. So I'll tell you about the class next week, next week. Um, just before we get going, I want, and I know he doesn't want me to do this, but I want to give a shout out to my friend Timothy for all the coffee and all the drinks that he makes every week. So thank you so much, Timothy. All right, so um, tonight is a very, very difficult interesting subject and therefore I am not doing it because uh, I found somebody who knows way more than I do. Um, she doesn't really need an introduction because she's our executive pastor and even before she was an executive pastor she was a regular uh, teacher in, in my classes. So it's good to have Marty Dolphel Smith with us for bringing us here safely tonight. And we do pray that you would guide our conversation and our posture wouldn't curiosity, but our posture would be worship and our desire to honor you and to know you and to reflect on who you are and how you've created this universe. And so we pray that you would speak to us tonight through your servant, Marty, and that you be a conduit of your grace and your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it's so good to be here tonight, and I'm amazed that you are actually here in the midst of a snowstorm. So that's impressive. For those of you online, I'm still impressed you're showing up. Uh, the, um, the topic tonight is maybe the heaven and hell and everything in between. This would be in between. And now we're going to talk about what's in between heaven and earth. And um, so I hope it will be interesting to you best understanding of it, but you may disagree with me and that's okay. Um, my only encouragement to you is make sure what you believe comes out of the scriptures and not something you've heard somewhere else or found out in a movie. But we'll talk about that a bit later. So the, the big questions that we're going to tonight are, besides God, who inhabits the heavenly realms and what does the Bible have to say about these creatures? Those are real. How do they impact us? How much attention should we pay towards them? And how can we resist or fight against the demonic realm? So I'm gonna take it up from up here down to practical at the very end, okay? Now, I know that David has not given you definitive answers, um, but, the, <laughs> but 
So I probably say that some of the things I can be more definitive about, some of the things less. But the scriptures um, give some hints about what is there, but again, they're not really clear in a lot of places. So besides the Bible, as I prepared, here are three main books that I've looked at. Um, this is a very heavy volume, not just physically, but also intellectually. So you may not want to buy this, but if you're really into deep thinking, Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology by John Walton. So again, I'll, I'll be referring to this book. Um, Powers of Darkness, uh, which is Principalities and Powers in Paul's Letters by Clinton Arnold. This is a very good book, and it's not as hard to read as the one before it. And then this is a very pro book. It's by a pastor in Toronto, and it's called Deliverance by John Thompson. So if I was to line up what book would probably most closely fit where I am, it would be Arnold, but there are parts of Thompson that I really like, and obviously parts of Walton that were really helpful as well. Um, and and I want to say that um, that that there are options when you look at the demonic and scriptures. So an option would be some theologians see it as entirely metaphorical. It's metaphoric, talking about something abstract and making it concrete. Someone like Walton would be sort of in the middle between abstract and concrete. He would say that the Bible is a book that was written for us, but it's not written to us. And so it's written to ancient people and will describe things in a way that would make sense to its first readers. Um, uh, Clinton Arnold would be probably that there, he would say that there is a literal cause battle um, and he would describe it in his book. And then John Thompson would also say there's a literal cosmic battle. He might go a little farther than I would go in terms of how to deal with that realm, but overall I really like a lot of his stuff. So I grew up in, I grew up myself in churches that ranged in all those ranges. So I grew up in a mainline church that would have said everything is metaphorical. So I remember at 13 reading a novel about the devil and thinking it was just ridiculous. There was of course no devil. Later on I became an evangelical, went into the Baptist church and again I would have been very much like, okay, there is a real devil, but we're never going to encounter that person and we don't really have to worry about it. Moved into the charismatic realm where it was all about angels and demons, and then kind of have slid in here, and I, I don't want to say where we're at, because we might be at all different places, but I've experienced sort of all different perspectives and its impact on faith. But I think at the end of the 19th century, the Christian church was really, not all the church, but a, a significant portion of it was leading, leaning into that idea that evil and the demonic metaphorical, and that the world was actually getting better and things were going to keep improving. And then we hit the 20th century. <laughs> and so the 20th century, of course, uh, described terrible genocides happened in the 20th century war. And I'm just going to settle in to one such genocide, which was in the country of Rwanda. Now, it was reported that 90% of Rwandans would have identified as Christians, that actually Christian people hacked other people to death in churches. That's pretty horrific. How does that happen? How does that happen? And so it was interesting, during the genocide, um, Time Magazine went 
against its practice of just putting pitcher front. And instead, it was a statement by a missionary serving in the country. And he, this missionary said, there are no devils left in hell. They were all in Rwanda. Romeo Dallaire, the French-Canadian general who was there, he oversaw the Rwandan genocide, and he said this, after one of my many presentations, following my return from Rwanda, a Canadian forces padre or pastor asked me how, after all I'd seen and experienced, I could still believe in God. And I answered that I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, I have touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore I know there is a God. And that's a pretty powerful statement. Some of you here may have experienced war or trauma. You can recognize that statement. I have shaken hands with the devil. And you know that there is an evil reality, and therefore there is a good reality as well. So I'm going to start from a place that human experience shows us that there is evil, that evil is bigger than each of our individual evil. There's something more out there than just we can imagine. And one of the, another book I read was a woman named Fleming Rutledge, and I'll quote her throughout, but she says that the, this imagination needs nurturing in the church. We need to be aware that there is evil that there is a realm of authority and power that is other and is against God, that that's something we need to be reminded. And so before I move forward and talk about these heavenly creatures, angels and demons, I want to, re I want, um, to remind you of a couple things. First of all, their power is limited. So we do not need to be afraid of this realm because God is powerful. And so in your notes, I've listed three scriptures that talk about this. And so I just want to read, prayerfully read them as we have talk about the subject. So the first one's found in Ephesians uh, 1, and it's a prayer that Paul prayed. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in, also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so rule, authority, and power, and dominion are the ways Paul talks about this heavenly, these heavenly beings, um, and Jesus is above them. He writes in Colossians, he says, The Son of, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. 
And then finally, Paul talks about the work that Jesus did on the cross. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so the cross was Jesus' ultimate defeat of the powers. Again, as we look at these powers, as we think about them, we do not need to be afraid because we worship the one who has defeated them. And so, so again, I just want to encourage you uh, not to be fearful at Ford. Um, so I want you guys in your, at your tables or online to describe a movie, a book, or a podcast that's influenced your thinking when it comes to your ideas on angels and the demonic realm. So we probably, if we're over 30, have all watched Touched by an Angel. Is that the thing that's informed your idea of the demonic? What are the angels? What, what has influenced the way you think about them? Everything besides the Bible. So talk about it. Got two minutes. So popular culture has many ideas about the evil realm, and many people are curious, horror and, and gothic movies and all vampire movies, they all have this sort of appeal. But let's look at scripture, and so, so whatever you've read, it's going to inform your thinking, but let's look at scripture and kind of see what it tells us about these things. So in this class, what we're going to do is we're going to do a big overview of um, a big overview of scripture so we're going to look and see what we can learn about angels about demons about spiritual warfare we're going to take a, a particular look at the apostle paul and his involvement with the demonic as he engaged the early church and then we're going to again look at the, the impact of it on us today so how should we engage it again what are we called to do about it so I want to say that every week you're going to hear things you disagree with or agree with from people at your table, from me, and so let's be kind to each other and uh, be curious. Um, let's start in the, in the Old Testament. So I've got it in your notes. In the ancient Near East, um, there were some ideas about the classes of living beings. And so the Old Testament was written with the ancient Near Eastern background, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. And so again, often when we want to try and understand the world of the Bible, we'll look at some of how those other cultures talked about things, knowing that that's the milieu that they grew up in. Just as if you were going to be 200 years from now, you would want to know about evolution to try and understand how we might talk about things, because that influences the way people think about the world. So in the ancient Near East, there were three classes of beings. The first class was the gods. So the gods, of course, were powerful. The gods were to be worshipped. The gods were to be made happy to, for them to have crops and and water and all those kind of things. And there were class two creatures or spirit creatures. And these spirit creatures could be good or they could be evil. They could be ghosts of a former human. They, and these class two creatures were responsible for things like disease and plague and disaster. And often these class two spirit creatures would have a relationship with the God and the God would use them as an agent. So the God would get them to do what they wanted, um, what God wanted, the gods wanted them to do. Sometimes these, um, these class two spirits were irrational. They just 
they, you might hear the term chaos monsters. So they just kind of went around and wrecked things, but they had real no purpose for doing it. So they, these creatures were causing problems often for humans. And so the humans in the ancient Near Eastern worldview were to take care of the gods. So the, the gods would take care of humans. But they had some ways of, humans had some ways of dealing with these class two creatures because they considered them dangerous. And so they did some things. Um, so sometimes they would try and get the favor of a god. So the god would ward off these, these spirit creatures. Sometimes they get an exorcist to move the spirit or they'd use incantations and magic. Um, and so those are some of the ways. And so again, some of those practices you might still see in animistic cultures. So when I was in Thailand, each piece of property would have a spirit house. If someone came to faith in Jesus and they had a spirit house property, they'd call the Buddhist priest who would do some prayers and incantations and take the spirit house with them so that they would be protected from that spirit creature. So again, that, those practices um, are still going on today. Um, the magic, the incantations that's still happening in some cultures. But in the Old Testament, they would see the universe similar, but slightly different. And so I just want to show you. So if this is sort of the universe, you, you would see that there is a God, Yahweh, the Lord of all. Then we would have some spirit creatures. They could be angels or other creatures. And then finally, we would have humans. Okay, so that is the world of the Old Testament. Now again, God does directly deal with humans sometimes, but often you will see God going through angels to communicate with humans as well. Okay. Now, this middle area, which the artist who helped me defined as an angel and demon, but it was not specific for sure in the Old Testament, uh, that middle area, some scholars might call this the divine council. So if you hear that term divine council, these are the spirit creatures. And um, some of them are called sons of God or Elohim, like little gods. The accuser is one in the divine council. So Hasatan is in the, the, uh, this divine council. There's angels, there's cherubim, there's seraphim. And so they, these creatures are all part of God's court. Perhaps that would be how it would be defined. In Psalm 82.1, uh, the psalmist write, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Now, that's pretty shocking for us, right? Why would God have gods who are part, uh, who are with him? But those gods, those Elohim, would be part of this divine council. In uh, Deuteronomy 32.8, and the ESV, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. So these sons of God, these Elohim, these heavenly beings are part of God's divine counsel. Now, these, so what makes up these heavenly beings? So some of them are angels. And the word mean, angel means messenger or malik in Hebrew. And angels in the Old Testament are never the center point of the story. The story is never about an angel. The angel are incidental to some other important event. Um, so we don't really know a lot about angels from the Old Testament. They show up. Sometimes people think they're people. 
and they bring a message from God. Um, it, when they're mentioned, it's always in order to let us know more about God, what God wants, what God's doing. And so again, we don't know what they look like. We don't know much about them. I think some of them might eat, but that's about what we've got. So we don't know that they have wings, and we assume they don't have wings. <laughs> Even if you might see that and touched by the angel, they did not have wings, so they got it right there. But uh, <laughs> so um, these Malak, or these messengers, these angels, they're found out throughout the whole Bible. They're not just in the Old Testament. We'll talk a little bit more about them in the New Testament in a moment, but they show up about 196 times. Someone counted 103 times in the Old Testament, 93 times in the New Testament they're mentioned. So that's a lot. That is a lot. And so their references are scattered throughout the Bible from the earliest books like Genesis and Job to the very last book, the book of Revelation. So they're pretty ubiquitous scriptures. Okay. So I want you guys to shout out a few stories you know from the Bible of what when angels showed up. Just tell Abraham, right? Job, yep. Mary, Passover, yep. Birth of Jesus, yep. So again, they're everywhere, right? They're they're popping up. Uh, yeah, we saw, okay. So most of them, most of them aren't named, and we'll talk about about that in a minute. But some, there are a few that are named. They're described often as heavenly host or the armies of heaven. And so an example of that is found in 1 Samuel 17.45, when David said to the Philistine, um, you come to me with a sword, a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the, the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So this Lord of hosts, these angel armies, that's who David would be, have been calling on when he was trying to scare Goliath. Like, you're just a big guy, I got a whole team me. And sometimes it almost looks like the stars of the universe and other heavenly bodies are part of the Lord of hosts army. <laughs> and again, remember in the ancient Near East, they would have deified stars and planets. And so God is saying, no, these, these, all these created things are part of my team. They're on, on my side. Okay, these angels have great power. In Psalm 103, 20, it says, Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones, you who, who do his word. And so even though they're great, they have great power, that great power always comes from God, and they do what God asks them to do. Um, and so if you think of in the story of Elisha, when he was praying uh, for his servant, he saw these myriads of angels um, that, that were going to protect the people and fight on their behalf. Second Kings 6, 15 to 17. So usually the angels don't have names. So there's two angels that are named, Gabriel and Michael, and um, they show up in Daniel in the Old Testament, and both of them in Daniel, and then one of them also shows up in Exodus. Now, there's some special angels, and some people would say they're not angels. Other people would say they're angels, but the cherubim, what do you guys know about the cherubim? Yeah? They help people love each other. Okay. What else? What do you? So that would probably be like a Middle Ages idea, but in the old in the Old Testament, what did they do? Does anyone know? 
Yeah, they were on the Ark of the Covenant, yeah. And they also guarded the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve got kicked out. The, the cherubim were set up there. They were in Ezekiel's vision of God, and they had four faces in that vision. There was the face of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, which is really interesting. They also had four wings. So here we have winged creatures, feet like a calf, and they were gleaming like burnished bronze. Now, again, some of that is apocalyptic language, so we're not quite sure um, how they were described in every, but that's how Ezekiel saw them. There's also the seraphim, which means burning ones, and they had six wings in Isaiah 6 and were the ones declaring holy, holy, holy around the throne of God. Another angel we see in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord is not an ordinary angel. What do you know about that angel? Nani? Same? Same? No, the angel of the Lord is not Satan, the opposite of Satan. He embodies God. He embodies God. Yeah, so many people say when the angel of the Lord shows up, it is God revealing God's self. Some people would say that, but he often identifies himself as God or speaks as God, claims to exercise the, the um, power of God. But the angel of the Lord is still not God, so he's still an image of God. Um, and some people think that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ because we never see the angel of the Lord show up after Jesus comes. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to put my pennies on that one, but just I'll throw that out. <laughs> okay. So there are some, so there's some good class two or these, these um, spirit creatures in the Old Testament, the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim. But then we also have some other class two creatures showing up. So we have the adversary, or ha-satan. Ha means the, the Satan, but it means the accuser, the ab adversary, the ancient serpent. We can see this uh, sa the Satan in um, Job, and Job shows up as part of the divine council, and then comes forward and presents God with Job, and then the whole bad stuff happens to Job. And then, um, we also see him in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. That's about it for the Old Testament on Hasatan. Now, some people, again, would read Ezekiel 28, 12 to 19 and Isaiah 14, 12 to 20. Those are passages, sort of prophetic passages about the king, the falling of some of the kings of the nations. And some people would see those as perhaps stories of Satan and how Satan fell from heaven. Now, again, probably that would be iffy. Iffy, probably that's not how ancient Israelites saw those stories. But later on, Jewish people, when they looked at the stories, maybe thought about that. So there's not a lot about this adversary in the Old Testament. Really shows up in the New Testament. And then we also have perhaps, perhaps have some lesser deities or demons. So the gods that we talked about. And these we're going to define as non-human creatures who do not receive worship. In Deuteronomy 32:17, it says, They sacrifice to false gods, which are not gods, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, God your ancestors do not fear. Um, those perhaps are these lesser gods. Um, but in... 
in Psalm 106, 37, it says they sacrifice to false gods, which are not gods, gods they have not known. Oh no, I doubled that, sorry. Why is that exactly the same? Don't pay attention to my Psalm 106, that's wrong. But in these passages, some, the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament would translate the word gods as daimonia. So demons. So that's how when the Greeks translated, they saw those false gods or the gods as as daimonia, which in Greek was not demons, but it was these chaos monsters, these creatures that caused havoc. So again, as far as we can see, there's no clear description of demons in the Old Testament. We don't see them, though we see these these lesser gods. Now there are a few passages which I've listed that are in Hebrew poetry that may be talking about demons. They may, but we're not sure. So for instance, in Isaiah 34, 13 to 14, it talks about wild goats and owls. And again, in the ancient Near East, wild goats and owls would be symbols for the demonic. So we're not sure if the if the poet is writing about literal wild goats or these little gods who are uh, spirit creatures, chaos monsters. So I'm just going to pause for a moment and just ask if anyone has any questions or comments on the Old Testament portrayal of these, these, this realm of spirit creatures. Yeah, come on. The the uh, uh, yeah, when the four letters are yeah. I don't think it was necessarily, okay, so she's asking if would the Hebrews not want to talk about Satan. I think what I would say, there was no developed idea about Satan. So some people say even the Hatzatan is not the Satan that we meet in the New Testament. Hatzatan was a chaos monster who was causing havoc, right? He was causing havoc in the garden or he was causing havoc in Job, but he wasn't. Uh, the devil or the Satan we meet. Some people would say that. So I think what I'd say, there's not a developed, um, a developed theology or thought around the realm of evil in the Old Testament. The Nephilim. So the Nephilim in the sons of God. So that term is the sons of God in in. Um, Genesis 6, and it says that the sons of God slept with the daughters of men, and that was one of the uh, triggering events for, for the, the uh, flood. And that was just like too much, too much for God. So again, a theory is that the sons of God were these um, spirit creatures that then like mated with humans, causing this, these Nephilim, these so they'd be hybrid humans and um, spirit creatures, 
other people would just say the Nephilim were like large people that scared everyone. So I don't think, again, there's no, then, yeah, there's no developed clear way to understand that. So I think everyone I read, no one would come out definitively and say, this is what it is. So I'm not going to say that either. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, we'll talk more about today in a little bit later. Anyone else on Old Testament questions? Yeah. That would be so the god Dagon. So that's the Philistine god who fell on its face in front of the ark, right? Um, and that's. And we'll talk a bit about this in the New Testament, because as the Old Testament progresses, it seems like, like Isaiah would take a position that there are no other gods other than Yahweh. So they're all false gods, whereas there are parts of the Old Testament that might have, like the one I read from Deuteronomy, that might have seen these as the sons of God, or there was some kind of spirit being involved in the worship of idols. And Paul in the New Testament will also kind of waver between those two things. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So there is something in pagan worship that there is some involvement of spirit creatures in pagan worship. Um, it seems like there's that perspective in some of the Old Testament and some of it like well, Isaiah will just kind of tear it down and say there's no other gods um, other than Yahweh. Yes, again, that's the ancient Near Eastern perspective, was that there may be ghosts. That wasn't a Hebrew perspective, though there are, uh, there is a story in the story of Saul, the witch of Endor, who appeared as a ghost. So that would be a story, one story that we could appeal to. Okay, let's move on to the New Testament. Um, I am going to give you guys a list to discuss in a few minutes, so don't feel like you're going to sit there forever. But uh, we're moving into the New Testament, and in the New Testament, the background, the, the background is no longer primarily ancient Near Eastern. It's now moving to Greco-Roman as the, the external background. The internal background would be more Jewish. And so there was a lot of things happening in the intertestamental period, which, David, have you talked about that? Angels in heaven and hell in the intertestamental period, or no? So, yeah, yeah, thanks. So, in the intertestamental period, there was a lot going on in Hebrew writing, and there was a lot, that's where a lot of the apocalyptic literature was written, and so there were a lot of ideas developed about angels and demons that you will not see in the Hebrew Old Testament. So, they were developing ideas. The Platonists were developing ideas about angels and demons, and some of those seem to be the background for what we're seeing happening in the New Testament. But they had three different thoughts about where demons came from in the Jewish background. One is that they were created deliberately. So God created demons. Two, they were offspring of other created beings, maybe the sons of God and the daughters of men, uh, maybe, and or they're a component of the human soul, either living or dead. 
So now, have you heard of any of these theories in popular culture of where demons might come from? Yoni? You've heard that people think God created them? Okay, anyone else? Fallen angels? Yeah. Yeah, or ghosts. Some people might think they're ghosts, like humans who come back to haunt you. Um, so some of those ideas might still be around. Um, so, so under the Jewish thought, the mental period, there were demons. They were supernatural beings or spirit creatures. They were out there with the angels and the archangels and the archons. And they had like classes of like hierarchies and classes of angels and demons. They talked about them a lot. They thought that they were created on, on the sixth day. Um, and God, it was like right before Sabbath, and God didn't have time to create their bodies. So they were going to be humans, but ran out of time. <laughs> that was one of the ideas. Or maybe they were descendants of Adam, or they are the people who built the Tower of Babel. Um, then, and they could take any form they desire, so they could show up like form of a horse or, or all these things. So there were lots of thinking about the demonic realm in the intertestamental period. And then in Rome, in the Roman system, they, they, they also had demons or diamonds. They didn't see them necessarily as evil, but they would have been spiritual creatures, like the class two creatures maybe in the ancient Near East. So they helped the Roman cult system. They were involved in magic and prophecy. And so when Christians came in and they said, basically, your Roman pantheon isn't gods, they're demons, then they were called atheists because they, they, they just basically said, when you worship you know, Zeus, you're worshiping a demon, and the, the Romans did not like that. Um, so, so this is the background to the New Testament. Um, so some of the perspectives of the early church on demons um, agreed with the scriptures and some of them relied more on the ancient um, on the jewish background um, and so there's a lot of ideas that developed not necessarily scriptures but also from jewish thought at the time and so i'm going to talk a little bit about how paul differed from some of these early thinkers but let's just briefly look at angels so again in the life of Jesus, angels figured many times. So they appeared at his, um, at his annunciation when they appeared um, um, near his death. They are mentioned to be involved in his temptation. Um, so for they ministered to G him after the temptation, there was an angel that helped him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus said he could have called a, a legion of angels in, but he didn't to protect him, but he didn't do that. Very involved in the resurrection story in all four Gospels. They, an angel rolled the stone away. An angel told um, the woman that Jesus was risen in Matthew 28. Um, some women saw angels inside the tombs. Um, divine messengers also pointed to the importance of the resurrection. So angels were very involved in that last moments of Jesus. Jesus also said that when he returns, when there is judgment, there will be angels involved as well. Um, and he gave us some information about angels, that angels do not die, they do not marry, um, they do not reproduce. So we're assuming from that angels don't, aren't sexed, they're not male or female, because they don't reproduce. 
Okay, in the uh, angels in the New Testament are involved in a number of things. Hebrews 1.4 says that angels are ministering spirits. So they go and they care for followers of Jesus. Um, and uh, so we can see that they're also messengers. So Paul, um, in, in the book of Acts, it was he, he says this, he said, last night an angel of God uh, came to me and um, said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all you sail with. This is when the ship that was getting shipwrecked. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. So again, the angel appeared to Paul, gave him a message. You're in this boat. You're in the middle of a storm. We're going to save you. Don't worry about it. We also see angels carrying out God's purpose, like when Peter was freed from prison in, in Acts 5, it was an angel who came and rescued him. So angels are very active in the New Testament as well as the Old. Okay, let's look at evil in the New Testament then. And the New Testament is based on the premise that there is another power or enemy. Who, there's a power enemy who's active in the world. And this is key to understanding the mission of Jesus, that Christ is at war with an age-old ruler, we can call him the adversary, the Hasatan. Um, and he says this in John 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. So the devil or the evil one in the New Testament is just not a mere symbol or kind of a sideline, but you, you need to understand the devil before you can fully understand the saving mission of Jesus. So Jesus is coming to free the world from Satan, from evil, and from death. And some people would call those three the unholy trinity, Satan, evil, and death. And so... The, the New Testament is about this, that the whole world is full of grief and suffering, um, but the power of Satan is not a greater power than God. And so, again, that Christ is going to come, he's going to establish his rule and drive out the ruler of this world. So this is, so again, evil is not just something that is in people, that people do to each other. And um, people are not in charge of the universe. They can't fix evil. Um, and what evil does is it implies a different universe controlled by extra human forces. And so Lance Morrow said this. He says, um, wrong is a human offense that suggests reparation is possible and deserved. Wrong is not mysterious. Evil suggests a mysterious force that may be in business for itself and may exploit human agency as part of a larger conflict between good and evil, God and Satan. So when you think back to the story of Rwanda, there was wrong, humans hacked other humans to death in the middle of a church, but there was something greater than that, something more than that that was going on in that context. And that's why people who were there said that they saw and smelled and felt evil. Okay, so I want to just sit for a moment in one of the most clear uh, conversations between the evil one and uh, the Messiah and give you guys a moment to look at that. So Matthew 4, 1 to 11 um, talks about Jesus' confrontation 
um, with um, the devil. And so at your tables, if you can read that, and then I want you to talk about this. What, is, what are they, is the conflict about? What is the enemy tempting us with? And how does Jesus counter that? I'm going to give you 10 minutes to do that. Or I'm going to give you seven minutes to do that, let me say. <laughs> okay. Um, Mike, can you turn off the... I have no more slides. Okay. Okay. We're almost finished the Old Test, the New Testament, and then we're going to move on to more practical stuff. But I want to say a couple of things. That Satan, um, Fleming Rutledge, who wrote the book Crucifixion, which I highly recommend, describes Satan as the personification of the will to negate good. So evil is in the business of seeking to undo God's purposes for creation. So evil is, so God has this purpose for humanity and evil is trying to undermine it. And you can see that from the beginning, from the garden, that what God intended for humans um, was not lived out. And so what Jesus does is he, with the beginning of the temptation, as the beloved son, begins to reenact what happened in the garden. He resisted temptation from Satan, and he continued throughout his life to take back territory from Satan. Um, and so Jesus demonstrated God's power. And so the I want to remind you this. The demonic realm in the New Testament is not revealed to us because it's the essence or the only important part of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus doesn't seek out demons. They're brought to him. But when Jesus overpowers demons or casts out demons, he's demonstrating that the kingdom of God has arrived, that God's kingdom is taking back the earth. So he's, as he confronts the demonic, he is taking back the earth, and he's confirming that he is the one with power. He and his followers will have power over evil. He proves he's the Messiah, and his disciples can do the miracles he does. So one thing I want to say when we're thinking about the Old Testament and the demonic, we don't look at these encounters as lessons for how we should encounter the forces of darkness because Jesus was doing something unique. He was actually taking back um, and conquering the demonic realm. So if we move on to the Apostle Paul, Again, Paul didn't elaborate on a lot of things that were important in his first century context. So there were all these things that were, they were talking about in this intertestamental area, um, intertestamental era. But Jesus, but Paul didn't talk about this. So he didn't tell us how the angelic rebellion happened. He never said, like, this is how it happened. He didn't name the demonic powers. He didn't talk about. There are different levels or authority. He never did that. He didn't talk about any kind of hierarchy. Um, this, again, this is just curiosity that makes us want to know about this, but the scriptures never elaborate on that. He didn't talk about territories that were re ruled by evil angels. Though the book of Daniel talks about that, Paul didn't. He lumped them all together and he spoke about Christ's supremacy. He spoke that there are powerful demonic creatures who attack the church, and they can only be overcome by the power of God. 
And so one thing I want to say in a lot of current conversations about the demonic, people like to think about those things. <laughs> Where did Satan come from? And what are the names of the demons? And what are their, yeah. But I think what I'd say is that doesn't seem to be an interest in the New Testament. So I would encourage you not to take a lot of interest in those things if those are not explained. So what does Paul say about the demonic? So he says that there are rulers or principalities, that there are angels who are both good and evil that are governing the universe, and I've given you some scriptures. Um, he calls them authorities and powers at times, and again, these are likely emphasizing the authority of angels and demons in relation to the affairs of the world, and there are thrones and dominions. So in Paul's idea, if we go back to that picture, there are, there are these spirit beings, these class two, as the ancient Near Eastern people would say, the sons of God, this divine council that has power, some power in the universe, but it's limited by God. Um, now he goes on to have this back and forth conversation that we see in the Old Testament as well. That first he says that idols are nothing. So if you read Romans 1, 23, he talks about idols as images resembling mortal humans. But he also saw demonic forces behind these practices. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he tells people to flee idolatry. He says that some people were destroyed by their involvement in eating food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8, 11. Um, so from Paul's mind, in some ways there are no other gods, but there are also dangers around worshiping other gods. Um, Gordon Fee, who was a pr professor of mine at Regent, he said this, he said, those people who've been involved in the rescue of drug addicts and prostitutes or people who've um, been involved in the expressions of voodoo or spirit worship, have an existential understanding of this text that others can scarcely appreciate. So they, it, so if you've ever participated in those things and you read 1 Corinthians 8, um, you will understand why Paul says that some have been destroyed by following, being involved in these things. Um, and again, he says that many such people, when they come to faith, must forever be removed from their former associations. So they can never go back um, and be involved in any of these practices. So I have a good friend who was involved in the New Age, in New Age spirituality. Part of that was her involvement in yoga. And so though she's very into fitness, she will never participate in yoga again. For her in yoga, she experienced the demonic and she knows she needs to stay away from it. So I see some people shaking your heads. Maybe there's some things you've been involved in and you know that you can no longer be involved in those things because you've experienced powers. I'll, let's talk about that after, okay? So, so again, we're, we're going to move now to the current realities. And when we do that, again, I want you to remember that Jesus did conquer evil. He conquered the demonic, and they no longer have power. So we're going to move into our current world and how we deal with those things. So first of all, I want to ask you the question about angels. So have any of you ever encountered an angel? You have anyone else? You're right. Oh, so you have? Okay. Possibly. And again, often if we do, we won't necessarily know. So a friend of mine was a 
great prayer warrior. She actually came to all my deliveries and she was a midwife and prayed for all my children as they were born. But she would always say she could see angels. I, there's two big angels in this room and she would say that and, and I believe she could see them. That was a gift that she had, a gift of discernment. Um, I know David has talked to me about a story that old, our old pastor Mark had where he was in an accident and he was rescued and nobody else saw who rescued him. So again, there are these stories, these ministering angels. I remember reading a story when I was studying at Regent and it was a, actually an article in a journal and a woman talked about how when she lost her baby and she was grieving and she couldn't do anything one day this old woman showed up at her house she was smoking and she cleaned her whole house and left and she was like who is that woman and later on thought it was an angel so again we don't know how God will send these people um, but I think again we would say there's still a demonic realm it's still real and we need to rely on discernment when we encounter the demonic realm so we cannot rely on technique so I can't give you the five things to do when you meet a demon that will work and so I want to say that that real again there's no right prayer or action there's no magic prayer or talism that will protect you because it's God who protects us so again, we can pray wrongly or we can pray rightly, but it doesn't matter because again, it is God who has the power, not our technique or a method. So I want to be really clear about that because um, we can often just fight about what the right way is to deal with the demon. And again, I'm just going to say, let's discern. Let's discern what God would have us do. Okay, so first, when we encounter the demonic realm, we have to remember that demons have limited power. There's no power that they have that God does not allow them to have. So think about it in the same way you think about, so this comes from uh, Walton, but think about it in the same way you think about lions in Daniel 6.22 or the snakes that Paul handles in Acts 28. So we know that God can hold back the lions because Daniel... Daniel walked in the lion's den and he was fine, but that doesn't mean we should go and walk in a lion's den, right? <laughs> and so we, because they're dangerous, lions are dangerous. And the same thing with the demonic. We, we don't, we don't want to look around for them. They're predators. We don't want to try and find them. We don't want to focus on them. We don't want to we don't want to call attention to the activity of demons. We want to focus on Jesus and what Jesus is doing. So that would be my first principle. Our focus is on Jesus, his power, and what he is doing. Um, but we also need discernment because there is a demonic realm. And so if we run into it, first of all, we're going to focus on what God is doing. Where is God present in this? What is God activity? Paul an amazing spiritual warfare metaphor in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. How many of you guys are familiar with that passage? Has anyone got it memorized? For a battle is not against flesh and blood, but against, yeah, and forces in the heavenly realms. And so again, in this spiritual warfare metaphor, I want to say that Paul is using, pulling material from a book in the Old Testament. Does anyone know? I've got it listed there, right? Isaiah 11, 5, Isaiah 52, 7, and then Isaiah 59, 17. 
So in Isaiah 11, 5, it says, Righteousness shall be the belt of the waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In 52, 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And in Isaiah 5, 59, 17, he puts on the righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wraps himself in a zeal, in zeal as a cloak. So these are metaphors from the Old Testament that Paul is pulling on to talk about spiritual warfare. Now I think when we read this metaphor, it's really important not to extend them too much. Like, okay, the helmet covers our brain, so what, what are we supposed to do there? Okay, the helmet of salvation, or, because um, Paul will use these metaphors in different ways. So in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about the breastplate being faith and love. <laughs> so again, it's not magic, it's just helping our imaginations to imagine the tools that Jesus has given us. Um, so a couple of things we can see from this is that we're not alone. We're in a community. We have the spirit with us. We have God's truth. God's, we have the righteousness of the gospel. We have the salvation of the spirit. and the, We have the spirit, the word of God. Um, and the spiritual warfare that Paul is focused on <coughs> is focused on the way we live, on our morality, on our ethics, on our, con on our conduct, on sharing the gospel. It's not focused on, on exorcism. It's not focused on eradicating structural evil. It's really focused on how we as followers of Jesus live in a way that honors Jesus. So spiritual warfare is, first of all, it's resistance. It's pushing back. You cannot have this territory, but it's also offensive. So the, what's the only offensive tool in the armor that you have? Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? Powerful, okay. And then, our, but our primary weapon really is prayer. So pray in the Spirit at all times. Um, and this is related to faith as well. So this scripture, again, is not a magical thing that we put on. This is actually, um, this is actually, um, using the tools that Jesus has given us to stand. And that word, stand firm, is used four times. So stand firm in order to resist the evil one. What do you guys think that would look like to stand firm? Not yeah, not succumbing, what else? Yeah, what does it look like to stand firm? Trust in God, yep, with a faith component of it. Keep your, they ask, keep your scripture, know your scriptures. Yep, anyone else? Yanni? Yeah, so we don't have to fear because Jesus is with us. Um, and in Ephesians 4.27, Paul um, talks about some of the things that might make us vulnerable. He talks about sin that makes us vulnerable to the devil. And one of those things is actually holding on to anger, which is interesting. He says, don't, don't, you know, be angry and give the devil a foothold. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about some of those things. Um, but, but, but this spiritual battle is a term that maybe makes some people uncomfortable. Well, battle is violence. Battle is a fight. Should Christians be involved in a fight? 
And a theologian who's written quite a bit on this, who really is interesting, is Miroslav Wolf, and he's written a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he says this, he said, God has the monopoly on violence. It's not our place as Christians to engage in violence. We're to engage in nonviolent resistance or standing firm uh, because the wrath of the living God is directed not at us, nor at our enemies, but the realm of the evil one. And so if we're enraged by injustice, it's not a sign of the righteous, is it not a sign of the righteous wrath of God? So as we see evil, as we see injustice, as we feel anger, that kind of anger is anger that comes from God who will defeat the dark powers. And without the wrath of God, we will not see any victory. And so Wolf um, developed this kind of theology as he lived in the former Yugoslavia when it went to war and as he saw the devil up really close in the evil that happened. Um, and Stanley Harris, another theologian, makes this point um, that Christian is, Christianity is not understandable if, it, if there aren't enemies. And to be a Christian is to be made part of an army against the evil one. That's what it means to be. So, so learning how to stand firm learning how to put on the belt the belt of righteousness. Those are really important things when we encounter the demonic realm. So the scripture talks about some things that make us vulnerable to the demonic realms, things like syncretism. So in, in we see that in Simon in Acts 9, 8, 9 to 11. So syncretism is participating in other religions, worshiping God and worshiping other religions, other um, we can be syncretistic with things like materialism, <laughs> uh, you know, that we worship um, money or wealth. If we worship anything other than God, it makes us vulnerable to the demonic. Um, we can see in Acts 5, 1 to 11 with Ananias and Sapphira that hiddenness or lying or dishonesty, especially to God, makes us vulnerable. Again, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that anger um, makes us vulnerable to the demonic. In my experience, I've also seen things like unhealed wounds. So wounds that we've experienced as children can make us vulnerable to the demonic. Sexual sin makes us vulnerable to the demonic. So participating in pornography addiction or um, extramarital sex, those things can make us vulnerable. Um, being sexually objectified or sexually abused makes us vulnerable to the demonic. And again, that's not our fault, but it does happen to us. So I'm gonna give an example. I was sexually harassed over a number of years or objectified by a Christian boss. And when I went for prayer one day, I went and a pastor prayed for me. I said, this is what's happening to me. She prayed for me and actually felt de a demonic presence lift off of me. And the way he objectified me made me vulnerable. And in my experience, people who've been sexually abused as children are often vulnerable. Um, so a theologian, N.T. Wright, he speaks about sin as empowering the demonic realm. And so in his, the way he frames it is, we are meant to give our worship to God. But if we begin to give worship evil, then we empower evil around us. So if you think of Rwanda, the idea of Rwanda, again, as people start to participate in evil and hatred, it gave the demonic energy and and like the energy would make evil worse. Um, so as we, as we participate in sin, the presence of evil and the strength of evil in us and around us grows. That would be 
what Wright would say. So where might, where might we experience um, increased demonic activity? I would say um, when we, when people practice occult practices or worship other gods, we see increased demonic activity. So friends of mine spent quite a bit of time in Hong Kong um, and in Hong, and this is the same for Taiwan and other places where um, magic practices of magic and worship of other things happen and they would see a lot of demonic activity. When people who are Christians come to faith, they often have demonic activity. There, we'd see that in Africa as well. So places where other, where there's animism or the occult or magic. So a friend of mine uh, grew up in Iran. He would say that the kind of Islam practice there is syncretistic and would be involved in magic practices. And we actually, this summer, David and I which, witnessed an exorcism um, from a woman who had come to faith, but she'd been involved in magic and the demonic before she came to faith. So again, all those kind of practices will um, we'll see increased demonic activity and also going into new areas with the gospel. Missionaries who do that will also see that. Uh, getting involved, um, when I was uh, in my early 20s, I was with a Christian organization and we were working in Victoria and our leaders decided that we should all get involved in praying against witchcraft in Victoria, which was a dumb idea because we weren't prepared for that. And after that, um, I started to get night visitations from a demonic, I never saw it, but my bed would shake and I was terrified. And again, I crossed over the line of being involved in praying and in, for something that God hadn't called me to, and I would also recommend not doing that. Um, and But over the years, I've encountered people, I have friends who, one of my friends' uh, congregants was from Taiwan, and she had a curse placed upon her from relatives in Taiwan, and she began to get visitations in her house from a demonic presence, so we went into her house and we prayed. So there, are, there can be lots of things that, that go on, lots of ways that we experience demonic attack. Now again, we don't need to be afraid when that happens because Jesus is more powerful, but we do need to involve people who understand and know how to deal with the demonic to pray with us. So in John Thompson's book, Deliverance, he talks about um, several models of dealing with the demonic. And I think all the models have some merit. I'm just going to quickly go through them before we finish. So first he says the gospel model. And that model is if you're truly a follower of Jesus and filled with the spirit and walk in obedience, there's no room for the demonic. So just stand and walk in the spirit. And overall, that's probably pretty true. But then most of us, some of us who've been involved in ministry for a long time will say that's not always true. So sometimes people who are following Jesus, for some reason, do have some demonic activity around them. And so just doing the right thing doesn't seem to deal with that. For instance, the woman we met in, in um, the Middle East this summer. Um, there's also the truth model. Um, and that would be maybe Neil Anderson, if you've heard of Neil Anderson, he would demonstrate the truth model, where you just fill out a questionnaire of all the places you've been involved in sin and lies. Um, there's a series of questions, what occult practices have you been involved in, what lies and bitterness, and then you declare the truth that those things are sinful, and then the demonic presence will leave. Again, there's some truth to that, but for some people that's not enough. So then the next way some people 
approach it is the power encounter, and John Thompson calls this the cowboy approach, <laughs> where you just uh, expel the unholy power. And so Derek Prince maybe would be someone who models this. So you confess, you repent, you renounce, you break curses, and then you expel the demon by breathing the demon out. Again, not necessarily the whole story and can be very um, harmful for people. Um, so that happened to my husband when he was in his late teens. Someone thought they'd expel the demon from him, and he I don't think he had a demon, and it was just very traumatic for him. Another way that people have approached dealing with the demonic throughout the history is the Catholic Church has had a sort of an exorcism ritual where they would fast and they would pray, then they would come together and they um, have traditional prayers and scriptures that are read out that would declare the supremacy of Christ. There'd be some identifying of temptations and there would be an exorcism through that. There was another man, his name is Charles Kraft. I think he was at Fuller, right, was he? He was a missionary in Africa for a long time. And he, his opinion was that pow, the power model of Derek Prince isn't enough you, because you're just trying to meet power to power and you're, instead of um, decreasing the strength of the, the demonic, you're increasing the strength of the demonic by fighting. So he would say that from his perspective, inner healing is really important. So people should be doing things like um, looking at some of the deep hurt in their lives and processing it, confessing, um, declaring forgiveness, breaking, breaking ties to things that have been unhealthy, getting healing for their abuse. And also as they do that, as they close up spaces that give the devil a foothold, that they will be freed from the demonic, that would, that would primarily be, uh, but then he would also have a prayer time. John Thompson, he calls his model the convergence model where he kind of uses everything. <laughs> he puts it all together, all the different tools, and that's how he would deal with it. But he, he says some things that I think are really important. He talks about when we're dealing with the demonic, it's important to, to find people in our communities who have gifts, so particularly gifts of discernment. So there are some people who actually can see and smell demons, which is really weird, but that's a spiritual gift. And so whenever I pray for this, I want someone who has that gift to be with me because I don't have that gift. And so, again, if you have that gift, we'd love to know um, because that can be really helpful for us as we're dealing with things. It can be scary to have that gift. And so if you have that gift and it's scary to you, then we also can walk with you in it. Um, I think there's also gifts of wisdom where you know what's happening and what you should do. Um, there's gifts of intercession, and so people with intercession gifts, you would want them involved. I think one of the things I would use, and John Thompson uses in the convergence model, is I would tend to use symbols, and again, symbols have no power, but symbols represent things. So often people, when they're dealing with the demonic, will use water, and water symbolizes the cleansing of the spirit. They'll use oil, and oil symbolizes the blessing of God, or the cross, it symbolizes the power and the work of Jesus. So these symbols can be helpful for the person who's receiving prayer to remind them of what's true. And so it's kind of like we do in communion, right? In communion, the bread and the wine symbolize the body and the blood of Christ. And so these things throughout the history of the church have symbolized the activity of God in a person's life. One of the things that 
that I often say when we're dealing with a demonic is there is, for most people, there's not an urgency. So people who experience uh, demonic activity or presence in their life have often had that um, presence for many years. So we don't have to rush in and do some kind of power encounter. We can be patient, we can be prayerful, we can wait and say, God, what are you doing? What do you wanna do? What, what is next? And so it can be a slow process, a process where a gentle process, a process where we walk with someone. Um, sometimes that's not the case. And when we were, again, this summer on our mission, it wasn't a gentle process. Uh, but again, that's this this woman really did experience freedom through that. Um, the I want to say again, if you don't have specific training and a great team of intercessors don't attempt this at home <laughs> so my recommendation would be if you're struggling with what you consider demonic presences or you know a friend who has come and talk to a pastor and we can help you um, we can walk through it and um, i've gone to people's homes as i said and prayed for their homes if they're experiencing activity in their homes and we can also pray here at the church for people so I want to close with these following wise words. It's advice from Fleming Rutledge. So she says, when we think about Satan, we can identify three important things. We must avoid speaking of Satan in order to shift the blame away from ourselves. So the devil made me do it, not a good excuse. <laughs> so we must avoid seizing on Satan to project evil outside our group. So Satan made you do it. <laughs> so, and then um, we have to hold these two contradictory concepts together, that Satan is an active intelligence contending against God for the world dominion, but Satan has no status of his own and he exists only as a will to negate. And so God, again, is powerful. And so we know that he's active, but we don't need to be afraid of it. And that's where I'm going to use the illustration. How many of you have heard the illustration of V-Day and D-Day when it talks the, about the demonic? Some of you, C.S. Lewis, right? So C.S. Lewis said, on D-Day, the Allies landed in Normandy, and it was assured that they would win the war. But they still had to fight their way all to Berlin. And that's like with the demonic. On the cross, Jesus defeated the demonic and his resurrection proved that the defeat happened. But we're still battling all the way to the return of Christ to take back land. And that's God's battle, it's God's fight, but as followers of God, we stand firm and we walk in the power of the spirit and we participate with what God is doing to bring victory and freedom from the power of evil in the world. Amen. So, uh, the questions? <laughs> so, let me ask you a question. Yeah, David, okay. <laughs> You're throwing me under the bus. <laughs> so, what, what did I say that model was? The moral model? That would be the moral model, David. The gospel model. The gospel model. So, I, what I would say is like the scripture doesn't. Oh, what? Can, a, can a, a Christian be possessed, oppressed, what, whatever? And so what I'd say, because I did read different perspectives on that, there's no clarity in the scriptures. There's no difference in the scriptures. There's no word that means oppressed or possessed. So we can't actually... 
Okay, we can't find that in the scriptures. So we're not going to go to the Bible and it's going to tell us. Christians, we don't see followers of Jesus possessed by demons in the scriptures. So we see Jewish people, but we know Jewish people were involved in magic and all kinds of things during that in that early intertestamental or the late intertestamental period. But we don't see Christians possessed, but we people would claim that they experienced they, the people with gifts of discernment see demonic activity around Christians. And I think in the ministries I worked in, when people are traumatized or split off from part of themselves, that perhaps there's part of them that can have uh, the influence of the demonic in a way that maybe someone who's integrated wouldn't experience. Um, so that would be, but I don't think we can define it as clearly as you're asking. But that's a good, that's a good question, David. <laughs> again i would say like let's try not get to get too technical so when we encounter something we have to deal with it let's don't search for it does anyone have other questions i'll i'll talk to you after okay so i will be around if you do have questions and uh you want to um, pray i'd like to pray yeah closer time okay so God, we thank you that you are the creator, that this is your world, that you have power over all that is created. Thank you that you, that, um, you raised Jesus from the dead and you seat him, seated him in the heavenly realms over, and you have placed everything under his feet. And we can trust in Jesus. We can rest in Jesus. We know the end of this story, that Jesus, you will take back this world, this world will one day be, heaven will come down and we will live in this world free from the power of evil. And so Jesus, we ask that you will enable us to stand and to stand firm and to resist the influence of the devil in our lives, that you will enable us to bring uh, the good news to those around us who are suffering, uh, to bring freedom. Yes, it's in your name, Jesus, amen. Well, let's thank Marty for tonight. Great stuff. And uh, just a reminder, next week, uh, look, think back of what we've looked at, from heaven to hell to purgatory to who am I after I die? Am I a soul? What about the witch of Endor? Was that really Samuel? Lots of really good questions. So fire your questions to me this week. I say I have a, a, a list that's growing, and we'll have the... I was going to say the best and the brightest, but Marty's not going to be there. So like three quarters of the best and the brightest, uh, or actually I'm there. So just half of the best of the brightest, so <laughs> won't count me. But it'll be a really good conversation. And a lot of those lingering questions that have shown up over the weeks, we'll just spend an evening and we'll just talk about them, okay? So that's what's going to be next week. All right. Drive carefully home. Okay. We'll see you next week. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.